Now back to the Andrew Lawton Show on AM 980. We are back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on AM 980. You're listening to the show that I have been talking about for a little while now. We're tackling a very significant question. As we do in this new series we debuted last month called Face Off, which is not meant to be conflict-inducing, but we had to give it a name, they told us, to have people keep coming back to it. But we tackle questions of a local, regional, or even national focus, and this time we're looking at the subject of pornography. Is it inherently harmful or detrimental to society? Now, I will advise you, because we're talking about a subject that does have a sexual nature by its very definition, there might be content you hear that might be a little bit distinct from what you'd normally hear on the radio. And to go along with that, I was offered by uh, one of our guests a number to give anyone who might have any issues stemming from uh, either this discussion or even from the subject matter in the discussion. And if you want to reach out, that phone number is 519-642-3000, 519-642-3000. And it is a helpline available to those in London. And with that, uh, the people joining me in studio on this question arguing, yes, uh, pornography is inherently harmful or detrimental to society, Jonathan Van Maren, who is a communications director of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform and also a representative of a Strength to Fight, which is a campaign on this very subject, and arguing no is Dr. Annalise Trudell, Manager of Education, Training, and Research for ANOVA, an organization here in London, formerly uh, the Sexual Assault Centre of London, uh, where she came from on this. But both of you, thank you for joining me in studio. Great to have you here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So like I've told the audience in the past, when we have this discussion, we'll have not a formal time debate, but if anyone's running the clock, I will uh, get in there and uh, really we'll just have a great discussion on this issue. Uh, We'll start with you, Jonathan. Your answer is yes Mm -hmm. to the question. Why? Well, for a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, I want to make a point that a lot of people can agree on, which is that mainstream pornography today often displays violence towards women. So one analysis of top-selling porn content found that 88% of this content highlighted violence towards women. And that's something, of course, that we have to be very aware of because of how especially the adolescent brain works. One of the reasons I say society, harmful to society at large, rather than just specifically harmful to individuals, is because, and these numbers may shock some people, the vast majority of people in our society today are consuming pornography. So over 80% of men are consuming porn every month, well over 60% are consuming it weekly, and the research of Dr. Gail Dines, who wrote a book called Pornland, highlights that the vast majority of internet porn those men and women are consuming highlights violence in a way that was unthinkable a generation ago in the porn industry. So she describes the top-selling and top-viewed content as being at least three men on one woman, her gagging uncontrollably, and then the sex act finishing with a degrading action towards that woman. So when we say this is a social problem, we have to say, are a majority of people consuming this? And then, what are they consuming? And that answer, I think, is, is pretty ugly. Just from a basic I, standpoint... We, we've got your, your baseline sort of position mm-hmm. there. I want to go to Annalise just to get your starting position, and then we'll have lots of time to go back and forth here. Uh, Annalise, you say it's not inherently harmful or detrimental to society. Why? So we're not pro-porn and we're not anti-porn. We're, por- we're pro-porn literacy. 
So what I mean by that is there's absolutely porn out there, as Jonathan is highlighting, that is harmful. And Gonzo would be one example. Some mainstream porn does have harm embedded in it. But there's also alternative forms of porn that are potentially even liberating. So I come at the basic condition is that viewing pleasure is not harmful in of itself. It's the conditions in which it's maybe produced and even consumed. But the viewing of pleasure is not harmful. So I guess today I want to have a conversation around what are the conditions that have to be in place for us to think about porn as being harm-free. So if we can agree upon a list of what that might look like, then actually the product itself as porn is not that bad. But the other moment I just want to push Mm -hmm. is that what are we actually talking about when we're talking about porn? Because I don't even know that we've had that baseline. So is it erotic literature? Is it audiovisual content on sort of X-rated uh, websites? Is it rated R movies? And and I think we probably want to get to that baseline. Well, and that goes back to that judge comment in the U.S. I don't know, but I know it when I see it. In fact, so mm-hmm. much of it is based on that subjective approach. I think that's valid, but I will ask you to Annalise's point, John. Right. What happens if you look at this in a context of only the positives? Does that not say that you could have a positive version of pornography, which would reinforce that porn itself isn't the problem? No, it's because of the impact porn has on the consumer. So a huge number of studies and peer-reviewed research have indicated that, for example, when men consume pornography, the part of their brain that interprets what they're viewing is for tool use rather than for a human being. So pornography across the board results in the objectification of the human beings being portrayed in that porn scene. And it's important to recognize that the research linking pornography to sexual violence and to degrading attitudes towards women is actually taken from studies of violent porn and non-violent porn. And I can give you a lot of different studies. I think one really compelling statistic says that with over 50 studies linking pornography, just any pornography, with sexual violence means that there's only a 1 in 88 decillion chance that that connection does not exist. So I would say that pornography, based on what it is, triggers dehumanization and objectification. And that's why I'm against porn in general. Annalise, I see you smirking. (laughs) Not smirking, smiling, in that sort of to pull a bit of a a card around research, like research is a hard one to quote. And and I know you have sources and and we should probably put those on air as well. Mm -hmm. But when we actually look at, like we can probably both pull on research studies that have been published that say opposing things. And a really recent published article by Campbell and Cohut 2017, which was a lit review, it actually looked at the vast majority of research published in North America on porn. And it said there's no definition agreed upon. So in a research world, like if you can't agree upon what you're studying, then, I mean, we can all tell a different story. And that there's very little that has been able to determine causation in most studies. So to eliminate any other factors that have come in. So I know that some of the sort of men that I've worked with in some programming who have committed sexual assault, like if you're already predisposed to committing harm and then you're viewing porn that is harmful, that's supporting actions that are already predisposed in your behavior. So how do you get rid of that what's called an antecedent factor. And the other thing is so much of the research that's published has asked the research question around what harm does porn cause? And so it's looking at the linkages. But really recently, Cohut at Western, actually, incidentally, looked at, well, what what effect does porn have, period, on relationships? Mm -hmm. Bad and good. And he found bad. And he found good. (laughs) And that's, that's the challenge with quoting research. It's all over the map. If we're to go back to what you said earlier about defining pornography, do we all accept here that the most common way that pornography is accessed today is via the internet? 
Would that be a fair assessment or would that be not even something we could take as a baseline? It's a fair assessment in terms of that's the most common way pornography is consumed. Yes. yes. Okay. So <laughs> if we're talking about then the impact of pornography, would it be fair, not to limit the discussion, but would it be fair to say that whatever is coming from that form of pornography is the most relevant when we're assessing social harm? So coming from mainstream websites on the internet mm-hmm. or coming from sort of the deep web, like gonzo are, are the, based? But are, are those two even distinguishable at this point? I would argue that in a lot of cases they are. Let me ask you, Annalise, if pornography has the negatives that we everyone in this room agrees on, where you have pornography that does create violence towards women or promote violence towards women, can you have that positive version that you described without that becoming a part of it? It's a really nuanced conversation. So if we're going to think about either using education or policy as our mediums to get at the problem, that's an incredibly nuanced area. And so an example that we've actually heard from some of our survivors is saying, you know, sexual assault mostly happens, not all, but mostly within a heterosexual context by a man, just statistically. And that's a whole other debate if we disagree with that. But we're going to hold that for right now. And so if you were to say, you know what, sexual assault is so prevalent right now that heterosexual relationships must be bad because they're at the site at which this occurs. Let's throw out heterosexual relationships as a policy moment. I mean, that's ridiculous and inconceivable. So when we think about porn, like there's harm embedded in it and maybe even arguably in more than 50 percent of it, maybe. But is that actually the site of the problem or is it something deeper than that issue? Because are we just going to find another avenue for presenting harm if we get rid of online media in that way? The question there I take from it, Jonathan, is are we just seeing what is already in human nature, basically, or is this creating a new problem? Well, obviously, there's something in human nature that's always existed, right? Sexual assault is not a new phenomenon. But the reason I believe porn contributes it to it so much is, first of all, on the research question, uh, the statistics that I've gathered are a preponderance of the evidence. So there are some outlier studies that say different things, but all the scientific evidence points in one direction. And interestingly, a side note, one of the major porn professors that defends pornography and tries to undermine the links other researchers have found is a man named Dr. David Lay. And I engaged with him on Twitter on this question and simply asked him one simple question. Do you condemn pornography that, for example, uses the C word to describe women, to degrade women? And he, at the end of that discussion, said, no, I cannot condemn that sort of pornography, which I think indicates the different places that he and I would be coming from. I think that that sort of thing is is degrading and dehumanizing, and therefore his research is coming from a particular bias. But in terms of uh, is pornography creating a sexual assault epidemic or is it just tapping into feelings that already exist, I would say both but that lends itself to the supposition that porn is inherently harmful. So we know that the vast majority of people begin watching porn at the ages of 9, 10, 11, 12. I've met porn addicts who were eight years old, and that engendered such a violent reaction in them that their parents wouldn't allow them in the same rooms as their siblings. And the reason for this is because, as Dr. Norman Doidge says in his book on neuroplasticity, it's called The Brain That Changes Itself, he said that porn consumption at that early age can have an enormous impact on the neurological development of these teenagers. So one of the reasons we're seeing high schools turn into this sort of sexual hunger games is because we have very young children 
consuming this material. And yes, it's actually reshaping the way their brain functions. I mentioned brain MRIs. This this evidence isn't simply ideological. It's scientific. I have to take a break here. I'm going to give you a chance to respond when we come back uh, to that, Annalise. Jonathan Van Maren, Annalise Trudell, joining me in studio for the pornography debate here on AM980. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Now back to The Andrew Lawton Show on London's breaking news leader, AM980. We are back, the Andrew Lawton Show here on AM980. The question, is pornography inherently harmful or detrimental to society? Debating it are Annalise Trudell, Manager of Education, Training and Research at ANOVA here in London, as well as Jonathan Van Maren, who is with strengthtofight.ca. Annalise, uh, before the break, we had to, well, take a break, unfortunately, is the reality of radio here. Uh, but I wanted to to give you the next word on this. I mean, where do you see the integral discussion is having to be with this, with this issue. I don't want to get too wrapped up in what research says. Um, and I know we've now kind of had that conversation moment a little bit, but there are, there's so much competing research on this. And that's a whole other thing. And unless we are sort of in front of the researchers, we're going to get lost in that. But I want to know what can we think about as being in place to think about porn as not being harmful. And so when I think about some of the producers that I've looked up and watched, like Tristan Terramino, Erica Lush, Shine Louise Houston, and Andrew Gerza, these are producers of really alternative porn that are showing either differently abled bodies or showing LGBTQ folks. Consent is on camera, navigated verbally. So if all of those things are in place, I don't understand the harm that's present. And I hear the commentary that you're really putting forward around the research around neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. I'm vaguely familiar with it as well. Mm-hmm. And and there's absolutely truth in that. Just like sort of some of that, when I try to explain it as the non-scientific researcher that I am to some of the students that I work with, I'm like, you know, if you play volleyball and you go and you practice the same movement to do a smash, those three steps and hit become so naturalized in your brain that you're not thinking about it anymore. That neural pathway is established. It's really Really easy to follow. So when I think about all of the sex that we engage in, if we all engage in certain ways traditionally, so if I like to have sex X, Y, Z way and I consistently do that, that way of getting off becomes really easy for me. So that that research and that truth is is larger than porn though. So that's true in any sex that we engage in could lead to bad neural pathways mm-hmm. in that sense or could lead to good. So if you're getting off to porn... And sorry for my language if that's offensive. but No, I think that's fine. If you're getting off to porn that has sort of alternative bodies in place or has alternative sex acts that are not violent and consents on camera and all of these other things are in place, I just don't see where the harm is at that point. But if that's not what the majority are seeking out, does that not lend itself naturally to say that we are going to have fundamental problems with the way men or all people view sexual relationships? I don't think so. I think a lot of that comes back to literacy. It's around if we're not actually teaching folks where to get ethical porn, how can we expect them to get it? Like if I go on and I'm feeling a little bit horny right now and I go and I Google porn, the thing that's most readily available to me is mainstream porn. It's Pornhub, it's YouPorn. And if that's what I click on because it's free and readily accessible and I haven't had that thought of being like, okay, is this ethically produced? Um, have I thought about what actually neural pathways I'm instituting in my own brain? Is that going to then affect the kind of sex I have with my partner or not? Like if we don't give them that knowledge and that ability. So that's why I literally named porn producers for you so that folks can maybe look those people up. 
Annalise mentioned this idea of consent, which is important here, but I want to put it to you, Jonathan, and I don't want to get into the prostitution discussion, but the one similarity is that the people who argue for legalized prostitution will say, look, women are saying, I'm going into this, they're getting paid for it, they're volunteering for it. Even if something is simulated on camera, it's still done with boundaries in place. So the question that comes up is, who is anyone else to say that someone shouldn't be doing that? Someone shouldn't be wading into whether it's work or whether it's whatever they're doing, whether they're producing it themselves. Who is anyone to say that a woman and a man can't decide, I would like to create pornography, and then people should decide, I would like to watch it? Well, there's two things there. So first, I would urge listeners to take a look at what ex-porn stars have to say about their experience in the business. Uh, One American porn producer said, the future of American porn is pain. What is the reason for that? Is that pornography, like anything else, is driven by market forces. The reason alternative porn is alternative porn is because the vast majority of people aren't looking but, at but, it. But hey, before you go there, there are adults that will say that they embrace that in their relationships willingly and consensually. Sure. But the end of the day is the question is, is pornography still harmful? And there's an interesting uh, divergence in those statistics. So about a decade ago, Pamela Paul wrote a book called Pornified in which she interviewed dozens of women who had accepted porn as part of their relationships. And Pamela Paul asked these women, so what's the real story here? And most of those women said, I felt pressured to accept pornography in my relationship because it was considered essentially standard. And we see that being borne out in legal statistics. 53% of American divorce cases actually cite compulsive porn use as the reason for that divorce. In 2014, it was discovered that 33% of men under the age of 30 were having problems with erectile dysfunction, which researchers have connected to porn use. So regardless of what angle we're taking at this, porn has a net harmful effect on almost anything. And are there going to be a few couples who say porn helped us? Sure, maybe there will be. But is the net effect of pornography on society harmful? Basically, every study points in one direction. And we're not talking about a perfect ideological universe where people thought about the ethics of something. The reason people aren't finding ethical porn is people aren't looking for ethical porn because porn is driven by market forces. Is it idealistic, Annalise, to think that we could move to that world that you described, where we have education and literacy that encourage people to look up the porn from the producers you mentioned rather than just the first hits on Google? It's a hard battle. I'm not going to lie about that. But when I think about in the last year alone, we now have a consent curriculum in Ontario high schools that speaks to consent and sex, and it speaks to sexual assault. So when I started in the field almost 10 years ago in some I mean, whatever, that's a little flexible, but about 10 years ago, um, that was inconceivable. And when I think about the stats, like that one in four Canadian women and one in six Canadian men will experience sexual assault, the vastness of that number, like if we were to link the causal factor of that to hetero relationships versus porn or versus like generalized media, like all of those, we have to get at the root cause rather than doing the messenger problem. So the, the porn to me is a messenger of other values, of other production ways. So I have, I know that there's some real research on the table and there's also sort of people's voices on the table. So one of the survivors and me prepping for this, um, I had a conversation with her and she had experienced sexual assault um, in a partnership. And she was telling me that for her in her grieving process and as she went through counseling, something that was really important to her was actually accessing porn. And that seems counterintuitive. But when we actually get at the why, it's because there was the portrayal of sex in ways that looked fun and sexy. And for her, sex had only meant in that relationship power and harm. 
So like that, that's a truth in as much as other research is. And I'm not saying one person's story is everyone's, but like, can we hear those voices? Can we hear how it actually can be liberating? The one thing missing from that story, and we don't know the motivations, and I don't think it's anyone's business what the motivations are, is whether porn could have played into what the perpetrator in that situation was doing. Totally. And so we have women in shelter right now who would tell us that, that they were abused via porn, that porn was used against them and maybe even made with them in some ways. So I am not I'm not negating any of that harm. That those are truth moments as well. But I know that whether it be sort of some women in recovery from sexual assault, whether it be LGBTQ folks first coming out and needing to see themselves represented because in mainstream culture they are not represented in sexual relationships. Like there are these populations that we're not hearing from when we just say that porn is harmful. I know Jonathan wants to respond to that. We do have to take a break for news though, so hold that thought and we'll be back in just a couple of moments. Moments here. Joining me in studio are Dr. Annalise Trudell from Inova in London and Jonathan Van Maren from Strength to Fight as we talk about whether pornography is inherently harmful or detrimental to society. The topic continues after halftime here on AM 980. You're listening to The Andrew Lawton Show on AM 980. We are back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on AM980. If you're just tuning in, we are talking about whether pornography is inherently harmful or detrimental to society. Arguing yes is Jonathan Van Maren from Strength to Fight. Arguing no is Dr. Annalise Trudell from Inova. And if you are just tuning in, I'll give you the warning I gave everyone at the head of the show here. Uh, We are talking about pornography, so there might be content that you're not used to hearing on daytime radio shows. And also, if there is anyone who needs to uh, call a number for assistance as a result of this conversation, that number is 519-642-3000. I guarantee you that is not the on-air talk line that is a <laughs> yes. so if you just heard a phone number and you want to weigh in on the discussion that's not the one you go to that's in, in case you are in need of uh, some further assistance on this so thanks to Annalise for supplying that uh, we covered a lot of ground before the break here and I wanted to let Jonathan uh, Van Maren respond I know it was a few minutes ago but you were uh, wanting to respond to what Annalise had mentioned before the break so we'll give the floor to you I really want to touch on this well is pornography triggering sexual assault or do people have these negative values already and porn is irrelevant to what took place? And I think for that, I want to take a look at what Dr. Mary Ann Layden said. She's been researching this uh, for decades. She's actually the director of the sexual trauma and psychopathology program of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. And her paper available online for anyone to read is Porn and Violence, A New Look at Research. And the reason she got into this field of research is she said after 10 years of talking to uh, pedophiles, sex offenders, uh, people who had committed sexual assault, as well as the victims, she suddenly realized that there wasn't a single instance, uh, not her counseling sessions with the perpetrators or the victims, that didn't involve pornography in some way. And what she said doing research since then is that she has found, based on neurological studies and based on the impact porn has, that porn is a teacher of values in and of itself. 
And that's really the point that I want to highlight for everyone is that pornography doesn't just trigger bad people. Pornography also creates values in people that they wouldn't otherwise have had. And let me give you an example of how market forces drive the whole porn industry. So those who are trying to, for example, create the alternative porn that Annalise mentioned. I took a look uh, just very briefly at the films uh, that were listed on uh, the Feminist Porn Awards and involved in those sites uh, were pornography that displays women being chained and whipped and strapped to boards, suspended. All sorts of horribly violent things were taking place. And one analyst said that's just an indication that because those who are consuming pornography want and desire to see violence towards women in their pornography, that even in the feminist porn awards, this sort of violent material has crept in. And I just think that's a really, really significant indicator of what people should understand, is that the market's driving pornography, and what people want is the degradation, humiliation, and, and violence towards women. Markets are driving porn, for sure. Mm. It's capitalist culture. Um, we're buying it or we're finding it ways that it's being promoted and free or whatever. When I think about ways that we also see that beyond violence is thinking, and I'm going to talk a little bit bluntly here, but thinking back to the 70s in terms of women's um, body hair, there were full what are called bushes down there. And then now when we look at mainstream porn, it is completely shaved predominantly. And we also see that reflected then in how sort of aesthetics is taken up by young women, particularly university age in culture. I don't necessarily see that as like a harm one. That to me is sort of an aesthetic and something, a pathway that we're seeing the effect of possible porn in setting trends on that, as well as possibly setting violence. But back to that research question, which is fascinating, is around like there's completely you can look at pedophiles you can look at sexual assault you can determine have you watched porn what kind of porn have you watched you can lay those sort of correlational pathways potentially even causational but what researchers are asking hey do you watch porn how, how was that possibly beneficial for your relationship hey do you watch porn did that give you some new sex ideas so again when we're thinking about some different population groups who we keep talking about men and women even in this conversation, but that, that's heteronormative. When we're thinking about, say, two women who are together, how are they going to know how to have sex? Because literally that is not embedded in our sex ed curriculum at this point. And they're going to search out porn as a way of expressing who they are. Last point, Feminist yeah. Porn Awards, now known as the Toronto International Porn Awards. Just fun fact, they change names. Um, and they're held every spring, so just for folks to know that. And they do have a vetting list in terms of what of what videos get put forward in terms of their awards. So how they vet that is they look at the pay for the actors. They look at whether consent was navigated on screen or prior to on screen but still filmed. They look at safe sex practices being um, embedded. And they look at whether authentic pleasure happened. So that gets at some of that issue around having something done to you versus you wanting it. So one thing I'm not, we're not going to debate today, but I'm going to put out there is that I'm not opposed to BDSM practices. In fact, we are in support of BDSM practices that are consensual. So just because there's chains and alternative ways of doing that, I might be into that. I might be able to consent to that. We'll talk about that in a moment, the consent and, and consenting to pain or consenting to 
things that could have pain. But I wanted to go back to what you mentioned when you brought up your point about pubic hair, which I don't think I've ever said in five years of doing this show, by the way. (laughs) But you mentioned that there has been a cultural shift and pornography has, or that cultural shift has really been downstream of what's happened in pornography. And I've read of cases where people in relationships have been not necessarily coerced, but pressured into changing what they thought was their own grooming mechanism because of what a partner wanted, because of what a partner was turned on by porn. So is it purely aesthetic if you're acknowledging in that point that practices that people see in porn become expectations in relationships. I mean, coercion, absolutely not okay, for sure. But where is the line between, okay, society tells me that you can't see me on air right now, but I'm wearing a dress, I'm wearing lipstick, I'm wearing heels. So society tells me that in some ways as a woman, there are certain aesthetics that I should Mm -hmm. probably lean towards. And if I don't, I'm taking sort of that on as an alternative. And so we all have certain amounts of pressures. Like when we think about grooming of body hairs, there's been a whole fad towards men having beard in the last year. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's the same thing as coercive pressure in relationships to pubic hair. It's not. But there's all of those pressures and they're on a spectrum of continuum. We saw it more realistically. And again, this isn't causational, it's correlational. But anyways, um, between anal and porn. So as anal became much more represented in porn in the last two decades, there were more experiences of folks disclosing that on general surveys. So is that linked? Probably at the end of the day. Is that inherently bad? It depends on whether it was pressured. It depends on if that was like, oh, hey, never would have thought of doing this. Kind of interested. Can we try? Versus, hey, honey, I've been getting off to this every night. I can't get off unless you do this with me. They're very different stories. That's true, and I, I want to address three things there. The first one is on, on the grooming question, and, and I think that's a really good point to bring up because Dr. Gail Dines has made the point that the reason the trend has been to no body hair is because increasingly uh, porn viewers want to see younger and younger women. So it's the infantilization of the females that has resulted in that sort of aesthetic being put forward. And the original second-wave feminist recognized this as a problem, which is why Andrea Dworkin, Naomi Wolf, even Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan were very opposed to pornography because they saw that train uh, heading in that direction. In terms of, and I can't believe we're having this conversation on radio, as you mentioned, the trend towards anal. There has been correlations found because what used to be gonzo porn, as you mentioned earlier in the show, which was uh, which basically heralded the arrival of violent anal sex in porn, uh, that has now slipped into mainstream porn and has resulted in horrifying things taking place in relationships. There were a lot of studies submitted to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health recently, and a, a large number of therapists and counselors who had been working at battered women's shelters reported women using tampons in their anus as the result of violent anal sex that was inflicted on them. And this ties directly into the BDSM question too. And I would just put it to the listeners. When we say BDSM, the reason I always think that the acronym is used is so that we don't discuss what that acronym means, which is bondage sadomasochism. And that's something, sadism is 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 something that used to be a problem. You shouldn't get off on causing people pain. But sadism in the sexual context is teaching people that pain is acceptable. And there are studies showing that women are being groomed to accept sexual violence uh, in the romantic context, which is one of the things the Fifty Shades of Grey craze has done, for example, is girls now just assume this is something that's normal. And this is something now that I'm expected to do. So the the line between pressure and coercion, as you point out, does get blurred because now there's the social expectation that being whipped and chained and, and hurt in the sexual context, it's normal. 
Fifty Shades of Grey sold 100 million copies. Um, that ties directly into the gonzo porn that a huge number of high school boys are watching. And this has created what I think is just a very brutal scenario in which girls think, well, um, that's what my mom read in Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's what my boyfriend watches in porn. So I guess my natural instinct to be uh, opposed to being uh, hurt in the sexual context is is something that I'm going to have to forget about. Have to take another break here. When we return, more of the <laughs> pornography debate here on AM 980. I don't like the breaks either, but we've got to keep <laughs> the lights on, folks. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Now back to the Andrew Lawton Show on AM 980. My guests are getting a crash course in the frustrations of live radio right now. You get into this moment, you've got a lot of energy, and then, oh, yeah, no, the, the news waits for no one, the clock waits for no one. Uh, we'll let Annalise respond to uh, where we left off there. Uh, we, so we just left off with some conversation around BDSM and, and sort of um, really, really harmful-based anal. And I guess I just wanted to hold space because I know some of the folks in my community, um, my own relationship, even just survivors that we've worked with, that you can be part of BDSM and that not be harmful. And and so things that count as BDSM are handcuffs. Um, they can count as blindfolds. So BDSM at, at root is power play. And that can be a woman sort of being the dom against a male submissive in some way. So I just don't want us to get into any realm where someone listening would feel shamed by the activities that they engage with consensually in the bedroom, including anal. Lots of folks can engage in anal and it be a lovely experience both as women and as men. Um, and here I'm thinking in particular gay men. So just wanting to, to hold some space around some of that shaming. I wanted to turn to one issue that I think a lot of universality in the discussions we see in government and in academia are aligned on is the discussion of, I mean, revenge porn in particular. We mentioned sexting earlier on the show. No, we didn't. That was off air. We were, but we have had <laughs> conversations on the show in the past about sexting. And, and one of the other elements that we see with that is revenge porn, where the you know creation of pornography might have been a consensual act, but all of a sudden the usage of that is used in a non-consensual way. How does that fit into the broader narrative here? I mean, does that not reinforce that, that, you know, creation of even consensual pornography can lead to what is a net harm? So Jonathan and I had already spoken a little bit briefly before, and super excitingly, we agree on some stuff. And so we wanted to make sure that we highlighted that, that by the end. We do, we, we do this to, <laughs> yeah. for that reason, though. I'm glad. So revenge porn um, is absolutely non-consensual and is completely harmful. And it's actually a tactic used to create harm very intentionally by the abuser. And so we have women in shelter in particular who've experienced that. Um, so I know that, and I think you have a little bit more knowledge than I do on this, but there's some states in the United States that have passed some new legislation around this. And so do you want to jump yes. in here? So there are a number of states, most notably California, because they've already started trying cases on this, that prosecute revenge porn for what it is. So, so just for the listeners who might not be totally mm. aware of what revenge porn is, um, it's often jilted boyfriends and, and to a much lesser extent girlfriends taking images they were sent in the context of their relationship and sending it to websites that actually host these images as a way for whichever uh, member sent it to them to get back at their ex-partner. And of course, this results in, you know, people could Google this person's name after they applied for a job and then find nude pictures of them online. Right. And so this is recognized now by the law as as something that is fundamentally illegal. But even to a greater extent, there were some revenge porn sites in California that would actually extort those women whose pictures had been published and would say, you know, what, if you give me X number of hundred dollars, I'll take your image down. So one of one of the revenge porn site operators just got a very hefty jail 
jail sentence mm. uh, for extorting women in this fashion. And that's something that me and Annalisa both agree wholeheartedly on. And your link to sexting earlier, Andrew, is completely apparent in this, in that the problem is not with producing porn as a couple together, maybe, or, or sharing sexual images, let's say, in sexting. It's with the person who shares that without consent. And so that's where we have our common ground, whether it's video or visual images. Um, that should be made completely illegal. So let's talk about where we go from here, because you guys mentioned you have common ground on this, which I think is actually encouraging, because I, I, as much as this is a debate, we also are talking about a social issue here that is never going to be solved with only one side winning out over another. No mm-hmm. social issue will. So if we are to, as you've said, Annalise, accept that there is a positive type of pornography, and we are to accept what you've said, Jonathan, which is that this is the real world, and whether we like it or not, porn is here and it's here to stay. Where do we go from here? Do you want to go first? We're both sure. jumping well, in. Well, one of the things that Annalise and I really agree on is that uh, gonzo porn, for example, this porn that highlights real violence towards women, which is I've pointed out uh, with my statistics and the scientific data, has become prevalent in the mainstream and to some degree has actually taken over the mainstream. Kinds of porn that were niche, not even a decade ago, are now the thing that most people are logging on to watch. This is something that both Annalise and I agree is harmful to society. And I think that's quite a large portion of common ground, actually, because if we look at the fact that 88% of top-selling porn content contained explicit violence towards women, and if we look at the fact that, for example, the number one sex act that people are looking for on the internet uh, happens to be three men on one woman with the intentional degradation and often physical destruction of that woman being, being the reason people are watching that porn, this is something we both agree should be dealt with. And I think that when you consider how many people and how much of the population are consuming that type of porn, I think that's common ground that all of the listeners can look at and say, wow, that mm-hmm. kind of porn is a real problem, and that's something that we should be trying to figure out how to deal with. And the challenge, of course, because we both agree on it being a major problem, is going to be at the end of the day, what tool do you use? Because policy and law is probably going to have some challenges around distinguishing where that line is, mm. <laughs> and and I don't know what that solution is. Education might have a bit of potential. So one thing, um, when you ask sort of where do we go from here, porn literacy. (laughs) We need to be talking to people around how to assess what is really harmful and to really be thinking about that. So not just to be thinking, what can I get off to tonight? But what are the implications of what I'm choosing to get off to? Are the people being paid ethically? Are people consenting in these videos? How do I know who's vetting that content and what's actually going on in my own brain? So how do I make sure that I'm creating neural pathways that are not going to support violence in my own relationship? All right. We have to wrap things up in just about a minute here, but we'll give everyone a bit of a 30-second period just to wrap up. I don't want to call it a closing statement because it sounds so formal, but a finishing off. I don't know. We'll start with you, Jonathan. Well, I just I just want to highlight again that the statistics and data that we have is that the majority of porn out there is now violent, and even non-violent porn, based on MRI brain scans, uh, results in the people looking at that pornography interpreting the humans in those porn scenes as objects, not as people. And the reason that I make the case that porn is inherently harmful to society is that when a huge portion of the population is dehumanizing and objectifying another large portion of the population, that the net effect of that's always going to be negative. Annalise, final thoughts. Bad porn exists, harmful porn exists, but good porn also exists. And let's start to think where that line is and support people finding that line. So I know, example for myself, when I first came out as in a queer relationship five years ago, 
Porn was literally essential to my sexual existence. I didn't have any idea where to go prior to that. So I just want to make sure that listeners who do utilize porn aren't shamed through this conversation and that we can actually talk about ethical use. Joining me in studio are Dr. Annalise Trudell, Manager of Education, Training and Research for ANOVA, and Jonathan Van Maren, Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform and Spokesperson of Strength to Fight. Both of you, great discussion. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Thanks Jonathan. Jonathan. All right, we'll be back in a moment with more of the Andrew Lawton Show, but if you want to weigh in on this, let me know what you think. Andrew at am980.ca, and both of our guests are uh, tweeting away about this, so have in uh, the discussion there if you'd like as well. Back after the news here on AM 980.